Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 2, 1 through 5, and 64 through 70. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baanah. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parish, 2,172. The sons of Shepatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 775. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245. Their camels were 435. And their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is, in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name, thank you. I appreciate that. My one brother out there. Uh, if you don't know, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And if you are just joining us, last week we began what will be a nine-month-long study through the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, we're studying these books together because more than likely they were originally written as one book. Um, it's also very possible that Chronicles was a part of that original book as well, but it doesn't really matter now how they are broken up. Uh, what matters is that they're one story that these two books tell together. It's a story of renewal. It's a story of worship, of renewing the right worship of God's people. It's a story of rebuilding in the midst of the ruins of a culture. The nation of Israel, if you remember here, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, had spent an entire generation in Babylonian captivity as exiles, because they had turned away from the Lord to do what was right in their eyes. So listen, here's the progression. Mankind says, I'm going to do what I think is right. I don't really care about what God says is right. I'm going to do what I think is right. God says, good luck with that. And he hands them over to themselves. And that disobedience brings punishment. That disobedience brings a curse upon them. And the curse was for them, not only did their spiritual um, vitality decrease and their spirits, their spiritual, they had a spiritual declension, which is declining, but also he gave them over to Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar came in and took them as captives back to Babylon. If you didn't hear the sermon last week, you need to go back and listen to that on our website this week because I went through a lot of the historical background to help us get our bearings in the text and I showed 
that all of this was a result of the prophecies that God had given generations before. So this was all a fulfillment of prophecy. And when you see that and you understand that, that should give all of us a lot of confidence in the reliability and the trustworthiness of Scripture. When a lot of people in the culture are lying and they're saying things, you can't trust the Bible, it's not reliable, it's a bunch of myths, blah, 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 blah. It's good to have some, to have some fodder to, to res- respond to that, to have some weapons and ammunition to respond to those things. No, actually, it's not just a bunch of myths and we can be confident and we can trust the reliability of the scriptures. But for those of you who weren't there last week, to catch us up to speed really quick, God's people had been carried off into Babylonian captivity for over 50 years. And God now stirred, just like he prophesied he would do, he stirs up the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to go in and attack Babylon. Well, in 538 BC, Cyrus conquers the Babylonian empire and he issues an edict that allows all of his conquered people to return to their homelands and rebuild their temples to worship whatever gods that they worshiped. Now, remember this, we had archaeological evidence, the, uh, the, Cyrus Cylinder, hopefully maybe some of you guys Googled that, an archaeological find in the temple of Marduk that confirms this very edict in um, Cyrus's own writing, right? And it fulfilled prophecies from Daniel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. This was, this all reminded us that the Most High, God, rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he wills. That God is in control, even when it's really hard for us to understand what in the world is going on. It also shows us, once again, that God's word never fails. If he promises to do something, it will come to pass. In a day and age where we can't trust anybody's word, we can't trust our politicians, of course. We can't trust our, many of our you know, highest echelon of healthcare workers and all these different organizations and all these different things that the government's put together. We can't trust anybody's word. You can always trust the word of God. Joshua proclaimed, not one word of all of God's good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Proverbs 35 says, every word of God proves true. God said he would turn his people over to Babylon and then he would bring them back to their land. Now listen, in Ezra chapter one, we see God move the kingdoms of men around on his chessboard in order to get his people right where he wants them at the exact moment he wants them to be there. Then we see God, he stirred the heart of Cyrus to make this happen. Then we see God stir the heart of some of his people to accept that radical call to return back to Jerusalem with the singular goal to rebuild the temple to worship God rightly. God was calling faith-filled pioneers here. Men who weren't afraid of a fair bit of uncertainty and a whole lot of hard work ahead of them. Men who are willing to kind of ignore the circumstances and to trust God and obey his word, as I said last week, come hell or high water. Now this journey was a four-month-long trek. 
They had many enemies that wanted to derail their project. They had no promise of success on the other side. Remember, there were no comfortable jobs waiting for them as they got back there. It was going to require a lot of personal sacrifice from them. So many people chose to stay behind. This 50,000 people that go, that wasn't all of the believers. That wasn't all of the Israelites. Many people said, no thanks. When Cyrus issued his edict, you can go back and rebuild. Many people were like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm gonna stay right here. Everyone doesn't have the faith that these men have. Some people couldn't risk it. They had settled into Babylonian life and Babylonian life had settled into them. They had basically assimilated into Babylonian culture, gotten comfortable with their standard of living, and they were not about to leave that all behind to go on God's crazy pioneer mission to rebuild the temple. And my mom's, my parents' generation, they would say, these people had become worldly. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to be in this group of people, in this society, as in American culture, but we're to live as missionaries, as God's people in this society. Well, what happens is most of the time when we go out and try to get prosperous, what's really happening is prosperity is getting in us. The love of money, the love of riches, the love of comfort is actually getting in us and turning us away from our God. We learn in Ezra 1, <clears throat> That God calls some of us to risk everything for the sake of his mission. To bet the farm on being a pioneer in a new work with no guarantee of success. This was what a few of us did when we planted this church 10 years ago. We took a big risk. And if we didn't, none of us would be here worshiping God today. None of us would. And God's calling some of us to risk it big again. So that's what's going on in, was going on in Ezra 1. Now we're going to turn our eyes to Ezra chapter 2. We're going to pray, and then we're going to read the text. I'm going to get into it this morning. So let me pray for us. Father God, we are in desperate need of your wisdom, of your revelation, of your word. That we are not all-knowing, but you are. That we can only capture a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of know-how. We can't hold all the pieces of knowledge together like you can. We are kind of, we are forgetful. We are stuck in our cultural moment. And so we need you and your word to wake us up from our stupor, to show us what we don't know, to open our eyes to what's real, to what's true, to what's good. You say that your sheep would hear your voice and I pray that they would hear it this morning. I pray that you would think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords that it would be all of you and none of me. Father, I pray that you would set the crooked straight this morning, that you bring clarity, you'd bring conviction, that you'd bring rebuke where rebuke is needed, encouragement where encouragement is needed and teaching where teaching is needed. I pray you would do what you need to do for your glory and our good and our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, open up your Bibles with me to Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> now, if you notice, we only read, it's 70 verses in Ezra chapter 2, and I received many text messages this week of people going, <laughs> what are you going to do with this text, preacher? Right, because it's 70 verses, 
and over 100 names are in this verse, or in this chapter, okay? And so it looks, what in the world is going on here? What is God trying to teach us? Well, let's read it and find out. One through five. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive into Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judea, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172, the sons of Shephtiah, 372, the sons of Era, 775, and on and on and on and on it goes. Okay? What in the world, why would God put this in his word? Why would God put this here? You know, they say that Iowa is a flyover state, right? This is one of those flyover chapters, right? You're reading it and you just start skimming immediately. Start skimming. Son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, and you just keep skimming, right? What's going on here? Well, in Ezra chapter two, we learn that God plays the long game. And he wants us to play the long game as well. The chapter begins with a list of names of those who chose to make the journey. And it ends with some of these leaders giving a huge free will offering to rebuild the temple. This was a monumental offering given not just so they could worship, but for the sake of the generations that would come after them. Now, last year, I preached a sermon called A God-Sized Vision for Our City, where I laid out what the elders believe God is calling Sacred City to be over the next decade and beyond. God is calling us to a long-term, multi-generational, county-over-country approach to making disciples, planting churches, and renewing the city. We see all of those aspects in Ezra and Nehemiah. First, this is a long-term vision. Solomon's temple took seven years to build when Solomon was crushing it, right? Solomon had all the money, all the laborers, and all the power that he could even imagine. He had all the favor of the people. Everything was going well. He was the height, it was the height of the nation of Israel, and it took him seven years to build that temple. Well, this relatively small group of people, less than 50,000 people, have limited money, have limited laborers, limited power. They're going to have people that oppose them. And listen, it takes them 20 years to build this temple. And this temple is a shoddy comparison to the original temple. When they first, you're going to see later on in Ezra and Nehemiah, when they lay out the foundations, the foundations are smaller than the original. And the people that knew the temple before, they grieve and they get upset and they weep because this temple is, is, it just pales in comparison to the former temple in glory. Secondly, we see from this chapter that this vision is a multi-generational vision. Last week I said that one of the things our culture is trying to do right now is to denigrate the word and the concept of patriarchy. Now patriarchy is taking from two Greek words, patri, which means father, and archi, which means rule. Patriarchy means father rule. Now 
scriptures are, our holy scriptures are patriarchal. Okay, we learn this from our, we, you read through, the, through Genesis, you read all the way through, we read it here, the sons of, the sons of, the sons of, fathers are ruling here. <clears throat> In scripture, patriarchal denotes the reality that God has created fathers to be the leaders of their families and elders of their church, elders or pastors of their church. That men were created to rule, not in a domineering way, not because they are somehow superior to women, but rather because that is what they are for. That is the role that God created them to walk in. Women are created to come alongside of a man in marriage and to be a helper to him. Now people, right? Well, helper? That term helper is not a lesser role in any way. The same term is used of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is co-equal with God, right? The Holy Spirit is our helper, and that doesn't mean that he is less than we are in any way. The Holy Spirit is much more than we are. The Holy Spirit is God of gods, and we are not, right? So when the Holy Spirit is our helper, it's not to denigrate him to a lesser role. When the wife is called to be a helper to the husband, that does not denigrate her in any way. In the Garden of Eden, God gives the man the mission to rule and subdue the earth. He gives Eve the mission to be Adam's helper to accomplish his mission. This is where the idea of submission comes from. Sub means under. Mission literally means mission. To come under or alongside of the mission of another. So God calls men to rule and their wives to help them accomplish that mission. Most of the time, that means, and that's going to look like, the man out in the world trying to make a living from the sweat of his brow to support the family and the wife using her gifts and talents and the way she's made to turn a house into a home to raise a godly family in. Now, this is testified to creation as well. Men are usually larger, harder, stronger, because they're called to provide and protect. And the wife is softer and more nurturing and relational to build the community in the home. Now, this is not always the case, but most of the time it is. That's because this is how God has created us to function. He's created us unique. He's created us distinct. One is not better than the other, right? We're just created four different things, right? A fork and a spoon, one is not better than the other unless you're eating salad, right? (laughs) You need that fork for that, right? A male and a female are meant to do different things. We should know this biologically. Our biology itself testifies to this, the created order of God. As much as our world wants to reject that today. God, no matter what our culture says, God still calls men to lead their families and the church. And any pastor who refuses to say so is a coward. Men are still called to provide and protect 
for their family and pastors must provide and protect their sheep. And God still calls wives to submit to their husbands as their husbands are called to submit to Christ and as all of us are called and all church members are called to submit to their elders. This is godly patriarchy. Now, this is under attack in our society today. And I'm going to acknowledge that because of sin, this godly patriarchy, this dynamic can go poorly in several different directions. God sets the standard. God says this is good. And all sin has to do is get in there and just turn it, twist it up, right? That's all Satan does. Satan counterfeits what God, God says something is good. God gives us something and then Satan counterfeits it. A whole lot easier to counterfeit it than it is to create something good. You just got to get, get him one direction off and it can go bad. So here's three ways that this dynamic can go poorly. First, in the Garden of Eden, we see that Adam and Eve's relationship gets cursed because they sin and rebel from God. Remember, we want to do what's right in our own eyes. That brings about a curse. That brings about chaos. So what happens? Well, for men, the ground gets cursed. Work gets cursed, right? So what does that mean? Now it's hard to make a living. Men, is it hard to make a living? It's hard to make a living, right? No, but you don't go out your door and you've got a money tree right there, right? And it's maybe sometimes it's even easy to make money. Hard to keep money, isn't it? Hard to keep money. How to, hard, hard to have money over a long term, right? So the work of man, so man was created to provide and protect. That specific calling gets cursed, right? And Satan gets in there and tries to twist it. It's hard to make a living now. And so men are tempted to cheat, steal, twist things, do all kinds of different things to cheat the system, okay? Well, guess what? What a woman is called to do, her calling gets cursed as well. God says specifically, now it's going to be very painful to have babies. Women, is that still the case? Still, still the case. Still the case, right? It's hard on your body to have a baby. Well, guess what? There's another aspect that, that most people don't talk about. Here's what it says in Genesis to the lady, to Eve. Your desire will be for, and this word for means against. Your desire will be against your husband and he shall rule over you. Your desire will be against your husband. That means your will will be against your husband. You will not want to come under his mission. You will want to get him on your mission. Is that ever a temptation, ladies? I'm not, you don't have to say amen or nothing. Don't throw nothing at me right now, right? But is it ever a temptation? Right? This means that women will often be tempted to take the role of leader away from their husband. They will want their husband to come under and alongside her mission. This is to flip the roles of men and women that God has given us in creation. A second way this goes wrong is men will, just like Adam did in the garden, fail to lead in their homes and church and will basically abdicate their responsibility to their wife. We see, what does Adam do? Guess what? Adam is called to subdue the garden, to rule the garden, to have dominion in the garden. And God allows Satan to, whatever he does, he takes the form of a serpent and he gets in that garden. Now, what is Adam supposed to do? Adam is the original snake crusher. Adam should get out there and get rid of that pest. Adam should be protecting his wife. And, and first off, 
protecting the doctrine of his wife, protecting the theology of his wife. Because when Satan tempts his wife, he tempts her with doctrine, bad doctrine. Didn't God say, and he twists the word of God. And Adam should, be there, should have been there and his wife's here going, no, actually, Satan, that's not what God says. This is what God says. Get out of here. Just like what Jesus said. Jesus did in the garden as he resisted Satan, right? He said, no, the word of God says, right? That's what Adam should have done. Adam didn't do that. He didn't lead. And then his wife gets convinced to believe bad doctrine, comes back to him, says, hey, let's, she eats the apple, comes and gets Adam. Let's eat the apple. Let's do this. And Adam, again, does, he's afraid to stand up to his wife. He's afraid to say, what did you just do? No. As for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord. We're not eating the apple. God told us no. No, Adam bends himself to the will of his wife and allows her to lead him into sin. And then that's when the human race fell. Human race was cursed, not because of Eve's sin, but because of Adam's sin, because Adam failed to lead his wife. Now, this is still going on today. And what, over 15 years of ministry, I see this in a house. I see the wife wants her will, her way, and she gets the husband to come on her side. And what usually happens is she kind of likes it at first because she's getting her way. But more often than not, she will come to resent him for his lack of a backbone. She will come to resent him for his lack of leadership in the home. And she will really come to resent him when it comes to the kids and his lack of spiritual leadership in the home. Godly men lead their wives, family, and church. Now, a third way this goes poorly is when men try to use their position as head of the house to dominate those under their authority, okay? Toxic masculinity in this form is a real thing. Men want to dominate. Men want to control. Men want to silence their wives. Men who don't use the gift that God has given them in their spouse to actually help them make better decisions misogyny in all of its forms, all of these different things, the Bible clearly rejects. Men, we're called to lead like Jesus. That's what our calling is. But we're still called to lead, right? Now, we need to say, this is not, when men dominate and they're domineering and they're misogynistic, this is not, this isn't a patriarchal problem. This isn't a problem with patriarchy. This is a problem with human beings. This is a sin problem. Sinners want to dominate people. Sinners want to silence people. Sinners want to cancel people. That's what sinners want to do. This is why it takes the spirit of Christ in us to humble us under Christ first. So we first submit to Jesus and his rule and his way and his yoke. We take his yoke upon us. And then out of that humble spirit, now we step out into spiritual leadership. So when we see domination or we see control, we see manipulation, we should call this out as what it is, sin. But listen, here's the deal. This goes wrong on the male side just as much as on the female side or the female side just as much. This isn't a, you could say this is a human problem. It's not a problem with patriarchy. You can find it in matriarchy as well. Just do a little research on the Queen of England, Mary I, who got her nickname 
Bloody Mary for burning hundreds of Protestant Christians at the stake. Now I say all that to say this. No matter what our culture says, we have to return to a biblical pattern of leadership and submission in our homes and churches. We need Christian husbands and fathers to rule and lead well. To be strong, courageous, humble, and gentle, fully submitted to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should not be afraid. The Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, men, be strong, act like men. We shouldn't be afraid to say that. We know what that, we should know what that means. In our society today, I know we don't know what that means. We don't know what that means, right? I was at a wrestling tournament yesterday. We, there, we, got, we got girls wrestling and I, there's boys on the cheerleader team. I'm looking at it, I'm going, I feel sorry for this generation. They don't know what's going on. They don't see how this is, their whole idea of gender and sexuality and manhood and womanhood are being completely undermined. They don't know what they're for. So they're gonna get out there and just try to make it up and go against God's created norms. We need wives and mothers to come alongside their husband's mission to help him accomplish what God has called him to. And I'm thankful that I have a great wife who come al- who's came alongside of me in the planting of this church. And there's no way this church would be here today if it wasn't for my wife. My wife allows me to be obsessed and singularly focused on this church and on our, our family. She takes care of so much in the home and so much for me that there's no way I could do what, I'm, what God's called me to do without her coming alongside my mission. But man, our mission, here's what our, this is what I'm saying. Our, our society says basically men don't matter. We don't know what they're for. And so, so, so what, men need something. We, t- somebody tell us what to do. And so what is society t- telling them to do? Three things that I can see. Number one, video games. Throw yourself into video games. And video games give a false understanding of the dominion mandate to go out there and rule and make and build and create something. Because guess what? The real building, real working, real providing, real protection costs you something. Your back is going to hurt during the day, okay? It costs sweat labor to go out and make something of yourself. But guess what? Video games cost you nothing but your future. Sit there and you build kingdoms to yourself and you become level 49 and all this whatever else is going out there and you become an expert at what? Nothing real. Nothing real. But video games, tap, and I'm not, if you keep it in check, video, I'm not saying video games are necessarily bad for just blowing off steam and having fun. But video games are a contra, contra cultural mandate. You're taking dominion and ruling and warring and doing all these things in some place that's not real. And you're not actually becoming a virtuous man that actually can go out in the real world and make something real and provide and protect for a real family. So, our society is saying, throw yourself into non-real metaverse, non-real world and become something there. And you w- literally can waste your life, right? Secondly, our society just says, well, 
I guess just throw yourself into a career. Just throw yourself into a career. Just give everything to a career. There's nothing else. Just make money. Be a success in your career. That's the only place that you can find a mission. So the, the man says, well, I guess I'm just here to work. That's all I'm here to do, right? Works all the time, leaves his family at home, and maybe he's never home, not disciple his family. Third, third option. So we've got video games. We've got work. And then the, la- the third one is Sports. Sports. And so what do, what do men do? I don't, know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do at home. I don't know how, what else I'm supposed to do. So I'm just gonna throw myself into sports or throw my kids into sports. And I'm willing to literally sacrifice everything for their advancement. And when anybody questions me, I'm just gonna say, well, he's got a, really, he's got a great shot at getting a scholarship one day. And so he just loves it. So I'm just gonna give it to him. And so we train our children that what we really love is athletic accomplishment. That's what we really love. And so our kids grow up loving sports more than they love Jesus. Three contrary missions to the mission of God. God tells us, first and foremost, our mission is to get ourselves and everyone in our home to worship God. Worship is our mission, men. We are to worship God and we are to get everyone in our home. As for me and my house, we will worship God. These patriarchal pioneers in Ezra are making the worship of God a priority in their family. Prior, prior, putting it before everything. They are literally reshaping their entire lives around the worship of God. They are relocating their families in order to center their life on the right worship of God. Can you imagine that? Dads. Are you making this kind of commitment to the worship of God in front of and for your family? Do you make Sunday mornings, the Lord's Day, the priority of your week? The first thing we're going to do, that's for me and my house, we're going to be here worshiping the Lord. Listen, and this gets really, people get confused about this all the time. Missional community is important for your personal walk with the Lord and your life in community and on mission. It's important for you, but Sunday morning, the worship gathering is the priority for you and your house. This is how you obey God in the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy. Same commandment up there with do not murder and do not steal and do not commit adultery. Keep the Sabbath day holy. That starts right here with the right worship of God for you and your family. Most of us, when we go to MC, the kids probably stay home. When you worship God together, you're worshiping him with your family. They're hearing the gospel as well. And they're learning what you believe is a priority. You have, and that means we're gonna have to make some sacrifices. No, my kids don't play sports on Sunday. It's the Lord's day. Sunday isn't for staying home and sleeping in. Sunday isn't for lounging around and getting a coffee and just chilling out. Sunday isn't just for watching football. Sunday is for the right worship of Jesus Christ. This is his day. And us and all of our families should gather together every Sunday that we are healthy and available and we should put him first in our week. Men, you are called to be the leader in this. When your wife rolls over one day and says, ah, it's real cold out. 
think we just watched a live stream today? And your flesh wants to go, I was thinking the same thing. But instead you go, what? Woman? No, just joking. Don't do that. You go, no, as for me and my house, we're worshiping the Lord. We are going to church on Sunday. Here's the next thing I want you to see from our text today. God wants us to think multi-generationally. I spared you and our reader this morning from a little bit of boredom and probably embarrassment because this chapter is filled with over 100 names. Why is this here? Why is this in our text? It's not just here so you can search through it for ideas on what to name your kids. Though Asmaveth would be unique. That one's still out there, totally available. You want an old name? Come on, Asmaveth is out there. Bring it back. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar even, bring it back. No, this list of names is here to teach us, listen, that God cares about our grandparents. Listen, and when I say grandparents, I'm, generations back, thousands of years back. You can't ch- trace it back like that, but he can he, he cares about our grandparents. He cares about us. He cares about our kids, and he cares about our grandkids. He knows us all by name. This is basically a census. This is another evidence that this is not a myth. If you're writing a myth, myths have to be compelling to get people to remember them and then to follow them. A census is not a compelling myth that you want to pass down from generation to generation, right? This is testimony to the historical reality that this is a historical document. Listen, and God is so patient with us. God is so patient with us. So patient that he's willing to write this down 98 times. It says in this text, the sons of, the sons of, the sons of, the sons of. You had me at the sons of, okay? I didn't need 98 reminders. And God's like, actually, you do need that many reminders. Generations matter to me. Family matters to me. And God wants us to be concerned with more than just our households, guys. He wants us to be thinking long-term. We want to have a vision that reaches all the way back to Genesis and a a vision that reaches all the way forward in the new heavens and the new earth. This multi-generational vision. Now, Jonathan Edwards used to pray for his kids, his grandkids, his great-grandkids, and his great-great-grandkids even before they were born. Now, you may remember Jonathan Edwards for his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He's probably the most influential American pastor and theologian in our history. And him and his wife, Sarah, had 11 children and were ardent in training their children for God. And as a social... What's the word? Sociological study, a man named A. Winship tracked down 1,400 of their descendants and tracked how they performed in history, what happened to their descendants. By 1900, by the year 1900, that godly marriage had produced 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, and a dean of an outstanding law school, 30 judges. 60 doctors, and a dean of a medical school. 
80 holders of public office, including three United States senators, three mayors of large cities, three state governors, a vice president of the United States, a controller of the United States Treasury, members of the family wrote 135 books and edited 18 journals and periodicals. They entered the ministry in platoons and sent hundreds of missionaries overseas as well as stocking many mission boards with lay trustees. They directed banks, insurance companies, owned coal mines, iron plants, and vast oil interests. Winship states, quote, there is scarcely any great American industry that has not had one of this family among its chief promoters. And it's interesting because you can pull it up in 1900, when this, published, when this was published, this was published in the New York Times. And alongside of it, he tracked a notorious, a notorious sinner's family line. And their family line was almost all unbelievers and almost all criminals. And Jonathan Edwards was, was almost all believers. And they're highly productive in society. Why? Because Jonathan and Sarah Edwards had a multi-generational vision that created a gospel legacy. See, a patriarchal view of history roots us in the past and it prepares us for the future. I've heard it said that he who does not care about his ancestors will not care about his descendants. Think about that. Our modern culture wants us to only think about ourselves. We are a, probably the most narcissistic culture that has ever existed in human history. There is no past, there is no future, there is only now. Live for now. That's what our culture says. Don't worry about your parents. They don't understand you. They're, they don't understand the world anymore. They're ignorant. Don't even, don't even think about your great-grandparents or your grandparents. You don't owe them anything. The only thing you owe to anybody is you to be yourself. You do you is the only thing you owe to anyone. Don't worry about your parents. Don't worry about your lineage. Don't worry about your grandparents. And guess what? Don't worry about your kids either. You do what's right for you. That is not how Christian men and women live. Why does our society believe abortion is a virtue? Because it's all about me and mine right now. No, Christians, we study our history. See, this is why our culture is pulling down statues and they're afraid of history. No, no, we are rooted in our history. We study our history. We pray for our future and we live in the present rooted to our gospel heritage, sowing seeds for our gospel future. And that's exactly how Ezra 3 ends. Look at, the, look at verse 69, 68. Some of, well, first off, we read there's about 50,000 people there, and then we get to verse 68. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, look, made free will offerings. Free will offerings. Now, listen, same language the Apostle Paul uses in the New Testament, talking about why believers, why Christians give of their 
offerings. Free will offerings, and it says this. Free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold and 5,000 minas of silver and 100 priests' garments. Again, Paul uses his language. According to their ability, that we are to give a percentage of our income as God prospered us right? If you're making six figures or if you're making four figures, whatever that is, God calls us to give at least 10% back to the work of God according to the way he has blessed us. Now, this chapter here ends with a huge free will offering given God by God's pioneers to rebuild the temple. Think about this, guys. When, when they said they would go back, that costed them time they had to relocate. It costed them a lot of hard work, but it also cost them some of their money. They had to go back to build the temple. They had to buy the supplies to build the temple. They had to put their money where their mouth was. And guess what? They did it. This offering equates to 565 pounds of gold and over three tons of silver. If that was 14 karat gold in today's prices, it would be over $9 million worth of gold and somewhere around $2 million worth of silver. Now that's, that, with over 50,000 people, that's not that much money, but that's a lot of money to rebuild the temple. It, but here's the point. Many of these pioneers, it's gonna take 20 years to build this temple. They're going back in their 40s. They're going back in their 50s. They're going back in their 60s. And guess what that means? They're never going to see this temple completed. These heads of fathers' houses are going back and they're giving financially towards something they're never, might, they're never gonna worship in. They're never gonna use it themselves. What are they doing? They are sowing seeds for their future generations. They are giving of their current resources, sacrificing their own personal comfort for the sake of their kids and grandkids. They want to invest in the kingdom of God and build God a house so that their descendants can worship him. Now listen, I get it. We, many of us 20, 30 years ago growing up, we took the church for granted. There was a church on every corner. We had no doubt that the church was going to be around. We don't really need to go right now. I'm gonna take some time away from the church. I'll come back when I need it, maybe to raise my kids or whatever. I don't really, I'm not really worried about it right? Times have changed. In the last 10 years, there's been a 20% drop in people that call themselves Christians. Our culture is changing fast. Our society around us is changing fast. Many of you saw even this week, the satanic club that is meeting over in Moline at a public school, at a government school. I'm going to stop calling it public school and just start calling it a government school because that's what, that's what they are. Promoting, promoting that. Our society is changing. It is no longer a guarantee that there will be churches around in 20 years. Most of the churches that meet in this city right now, they might be there, but they're not preaching the gospel anymore. They're not real churches. The spirit of God is not there. What does that mean for us? That means we have to make sacrifices for the, our kids and our grandkids in the future. And that's exactly what we're trying to do here at Sacred City. From our kids' ministry, to our youth ministry, to this worship gathering, to our missional communities, all of it is to build families to worship God. This is why we're looking for a building this year. 
and praying that God would give us a more permanent space to call our home. It's for our kids and our grandkids. But that will never happen unless all of us think long-term, multi-generationally, and we are willing today to make sacrifices for what we want to see in the future. That's what we're going to have to do. We want all of us, our kids and our grandkids, to be worshiping Jesus with us here in the future. And listen, I don't know if you follow this stuff very closely or not, but there is, they, a, a bill has passed in Canada. It's called the C4 bill. And it goes in, I think it goes in effect even today, I think, if, if I'm right. And it's a bill that bans conversion therapy. Now, if you've been around for a while, that you probably think conversion therapy is some unhelpful practices that were practiced 30, 40 years ago, stuff like shock therapy to convert someone from being gay to straight or being transgender to the gender of their birth. And these practices have been discredited and have been off the books for a long time and not been practiced for a long time. But this bill that bans conversion therapy has brought in a whole new definition of what conversion means. Here's what it states. I'm quoting it. Conversion therapy is a harm to society because it promotes, quote, the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. Preferred. Now, what this bill states is this bill is not just for counselors. This bill is for anyone. And you, if you preach a biblical sexual ethic, a biblical gender identity, then you will be punishable up to five years in prison. Listen, there are no like clauses under here that says, well, if a person says, hey, I'm struggling with my sexual identity and I want the biblical approach and I give them the biblical approach, no, it's still illegal. Punishable up to five years. This bill in Canada passed without any opposition. Conservative and liberals on both sides. So now it is illegal to preach a biblical sexual ethic in Canada. And now Indiana is, is bringing this bill to America. And this is, it's likely to become a bill here. Now listen, this is what's absolutely crazy. You can't even say that a man born a man, it's better for him to remain a man and not be, and not transition to something different, right? You can't even say it's better. Think about that, what, what that means for society at large. Guess what? Homosexual unions cannot produce children. See, be obsessed with yourself. Be obsessed with your feelings. Be obsessed with you. And what's it doing? Cuts you off from your history, cuts you off from your future. homosexuals cannot reproduce by themselves. They have no future. So what are they betting their future on? They're betting their future on your kids. It's the only way. 
And so why do I bring this up? I bring this up because Canadian pastors are calling for pastors around the world today to bring this up so to, to make people aware of it because it's, it's going, we're next. If we follow suit, we're next. And this is another reason why we're trying to buy our own building this year because we are in a city-owned building. And if the government passes these things and our city passes these things, then they're going to tell me I cannot preach the gospel. I cannot tell men to be men and women to be women and for males to marry females and to get married and to live out the biblical sexual ethic. I'm telling my children. I'm talking to my children about this. Your daddy's probably going to end up in jail someday. This is where we're going. Because I refuse to bend on what the word of God says. But guess what? Honestly, it won't matter if we don't make the sacrifices for this church today. Men have to step up and lead in their homes and lead in this church and plant future churches or there will be no church in 20 years. And we all have to sacrifice financially or there will be no church in 20 years. But we trust a sovereign God who rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomever he wishes. So we're doing all of this because we want our children's names and our grandchildren's names written in the Lamb's book of life, written in Jesus's book right? We read this and we learn names matter. And Jesus has another book too. And names matter in that. And the only way people's names are going to be written down in that book is if a person is up here preaching the gospel and the gospel is doing the work, right? And we need a place to preach the gospel, right? We all, we get that. As Peter preached in the book of Acts, the promise of salvation is for us and our kids and our kids' kids and all those who are far off. The message is, Jesus Christ is king of the universe. That Jesus Christ has given us his word. It will come to pass. No matter what our culture says, we stand on this. And it's our job when the word of God is preached and it hurts us and it cuts us. We don't trust our heart. We trust the word of God. And we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can be forgiven of our sins. And we can have life without end. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for your spirit as it enables me to preach (sighs) tough topics, especially in this culture that we're in today, Lord. Lots of pressure to say, to cave. Lots of pressure to bend. (sighs) I pray that you would put steel in our spine and we would trust your word now more than ever. That your people would rise to the top. Your people would stand strong that you would help us lead our families well, that our kids would come to know you and we would have a legacy like Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, Father, that you would build that, create that, even in our city among us. We turn from our sins. We turn to you now. And we're reminded that Jesus Christ, he came just like this. He came with his own lineage. The book of Matthew begins with a bunch of names, a long list of names, proving that Jesus is in this Time, the, same, the same lineage of, of history and that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death so that we could be brought into this family line by faith. So Father, 
This biblical history is our history and the biblical future is our, is our future. And so right now in the Lord's Supper, we come before our conquering king and we sit down and we feast at his table in the presence of our enemies. Thank you that you promise victory, victory over the grave, victory over sin, victory over the devil, and that you are ruling right now until you make every one of your enemies a footstool for your feet. May we eat this meal in faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.